G'day, everyone. I'll pray, and then we'll get this passage together. Our Heavenly Father, uh, Jesus tells us that we do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from your mouth. So we pray now that we will feed on your word, uh, that we will listen to it, uh, that we will live by and we will trust in it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Apparently, uh, over the last 12 months, the big thing to do is to make sourdough bread for yourself at home. And apparently, during COVID, lots of people got into making sourdough. Is there anyone here who got into that who's been making sourdough bread at home? Anyone? Well, this is good. We're not followers of trends. That's great. We're... This morning, a few people put up their hands, and I sort of said to them, well, why didn't you give me any? But anyway... Uh... Thing is, though, apparently, normally when you make bread, you, well, you should know this. You add yeast to make bread. You need to add yeast, and you buy it in a packet. But uh, well, not in the olden days, but you know what I mean. But uh, apparently, with sourdough, you don't, don't do that. Apparently, with sourdough, it gets all its flavour. And I'm reading from the internet here. Gets all its flavour from the wild yeast that is naturally growing in your kitchen. Does anyone else find that a little bit disconcerting? made me sort of think I don't want any of your sourdough you, you, you know if it's made with the wild yeast naturally growing in your kitchen who knows what's growing in my kitchen but anyway apparently in San Francisco there's a bakery and their starter that's what you call the yeast thing their starter is over a hundred years old so it's been going for over so they have a big sign on the front of their bakery come and have our bread that dates from the time of the gold rush you know in 1848 or something like that and again, I'm just not sure that's a selling point. I'm not sure I want something that's been growing for over 100 years in my bread. Now, the point of all that is to say, when you are making bread, uh, the yeast, whether you get it from a packet or growing wild in your kitchen, the yeast is the key. If the yeast is bad, the whole loaf of bread is bad. It's ruined because the yeast is what makes it rise, it gives it the flavour. If it's bad, you just get a, a lump of hard flour. But if the yeast is good then the bread is good. That's the way it works. And the other thing with yeast is, even though it's the most important ingredient, you put in tons of flour, tons of water, but you just put in a pinch of yeast. You see, it's what makes it or breaks it, even though it's the smallest ingredient. That is the metaphor that Jesus picks up on in Matthew chapter 16 that we're looking at tonight. So keep that in your mind as we look at Matthew 16 together. Have it open, please, and look with me. Now, bread has been a repeated theme of these passages over the last few weeks because Jesus has done these two incredible miracles where he has made bread for thousands of people with a couple of small loaves. So first of all, if you remember, it was the feeding of the 5,000 when he fed 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children with just a few small loaves. And then just in case people missed it, he did it again. He fed 4,000 again with just a few small loaves. And in a world where bread was your staple, where you didn't have a corner store to go and find your bread, where bread was what you got for life, where you spent your day working out, where is my bread coming from? Jesus was making the incredible point. He was saying, come to me for life. And so I've quoted this over and over again in John's gospel. Excuse me. I am the bread of life, Jesus says. You see, these feeding miracles, they weren't just party tricks. They weren't just Jesus saying, I can do this, so I will. They weren't even just acts of compassion. These people are hungry, so I'll feed them. They were showing, this is what I offer you. Jesus was saying, come and listen to me. Feed on me and my words in your heart. Trust in me and you'll receive eternal life. 
But that wasn't all Jesus had been doing. He'd been doing all sorts of other incredible miracles as well. Flick back in your Bibles to chapter 15, look at verse 30, and it'll come up on the screen as well. Verse 30, he said, it says, And large crowds came to him, having with them the lame, the blind, the deformed, those unable to speak, and many others. They put them at his feet. And then I love these four words. I love the way it's so matter-of-fact. And he healed them. It's like they're saying, every possible illness every possible disability whatever it is and he healed them it's incredible stuff when you think about it and the only response to what Jesus had been doing all of these miracles all of these healings the only right response if you think about it, is really really obvious it is amazement it's worship it's to glorify him which is how people were responding so look at chapter 15 verse 31 and remember these are gentile people or at least it includes Gentile people, not Jews. And it says, and they gave glory to the God of Israel. The right response to all that Jesus was doing was just absolutely obvious. Give glory to God. But then along came the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's where we come to now. So I've called this section intentional unbelief. This is verses one to four. Look at verse one with me. It says, the Pharisees and Sadducees approached and as a test, asked him to show them a sign from heaven. You see what they're doing? It's like, show us a sign on demand, Jesus. Do us a trick, if you like. Do it just for us, then we'll believe. I hope you can see how perverse that is, how evil that is. We've seen all those miracles. We've seen all those blind people now seeing, deaf people now hearing and all that, but just do one for us on demand, and then we'll believe. What's even more incredible is this is the Pharisees and the Sadducees together. These two groups of people hated each other. They hated each other. The Pharisees, on the one hand, they were the religious teachers and the scribes. We know a lot more about the Pharisees because we come across them all the time in the Gospels. We tend to think they're the bad guys, don't we? If I say a Pharisee, you, you boo or you hiss, you know, that you think they're the bad guys. But in a way, they were the good guys when you compare them to the Sadducees. That's how bad the Sadducees were. See, the Pharisees, at least in theory, loved God's word. They loved the Old Testament. But sadly, they had become so concerned with keeping God's law that they'd sort of missed the wood for the trees. They'd added all these human traditions on top of God's law, and then they condemned anyone who didn't meet their standards. So the thing you know about Pharisees is they are the self-righteous ones. They are the the people who are judgmental of others. They missed the fact that they were sinners too. It wasn't just these people that they condemned who were sinners. They were sinners too. They needed God's grace and God's mercy too. But the Sadducees, they were awful. They, they only accepted the first five books of the Bible, so Genesis, Exodus, and so on, right back at the beginning of the Bible. But the big thing about them was they believed this life was all there is. You died, and that was it. So they, they had no hope of the resurrection, of anything after this life. And what happens when people believe this life is all there is? Well, you become totally fixated and focused with this world, and that's what they did. So they were actually the wealthy people down in Jerusalem who ran the temple. They were the people who took money from the people who did believe. They took the money from them to come and worship at the temple. They're the people Jesus kicked out of the temple, if you remember, uh, later on in the gospel. So the Sadducees were awful. But the thing is, these two groups had nothing in common. They hated each other. Nothing in common except 
They both hated Jesus more than they hated one another. There is nothing quite as unifying as a common enemy. And so they demand a sign to test Jesus. And what's Jesus' response? Look at verse 2. It says, he answered them, when evening comes, you say it will be good weather because the sky is red. And in the morning, today will be stormy because the sky is red and threatening. You know how to read the appearance of the sky, but you can't read the signs of the times. Now, I never knew this, but apparently everyone who's a sailor and everyone who's a farmer, and I'm neither of those things, knows this. Victoria explained it to me. Red sky at night, sailor's delight. People know that saying? Red sky at night, sailor's delight. Red sky in the morning, sailor's warning. So how it works, if there's a red sky at night, it means it's going to be a lovely day the next day. You can go sailing or do your farming, whatever it is people do. You know, If it's a red sky in the morning, watch out, storm's coming. So apparently that is a saying in just about every culture on earth. I didn't know that. So there you go, you know something new. Whether or not you know that, Jesus' point is very, very simple. He says, you know how to look up at the sky and read the signs. So for us, he might say, you know if you walk outside and it is grey and overcast to go back in and get an umbrella or get a raincoat. You know if you walk outside and the sun is shining and it's hot to put some sunscreen on or or get a hat. You read the signs. And so Jesus is saying to them, surely you have been able to see all these signs that have been going on. You're not blind. And especially the Pharisees, because the Pharisees loved the prophets of the Old Testament. And the prophets said things like this. Look at Isaiah 35. It'll come up on the screen. They said, when the Messiah comes, thanks, Kenneth, when the Messiah comes, it says, then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will sing for joy. And it's like Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, what have you seen me doing? You know, look over there. Look at that bloke. He used to be blind. Now he can see. Look at that woman over there. She used to be lame. You used to walk past her every day. Well, now she's jumping around and walking. You've had plenty of signs. And so he says, look at verse 4, an evil and adulterous generation demands a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. We'll come to the sign of Jonah in a second. But the point he's making is, it is not a lack of evidence that is stopping you believing in me. It's not a lack of evidence that is stopping them trusting Jesus. It's their sinful hearts. That's the problem. It's the fact that they don't want to repent. It's the fact they don't want to believe in Jesus. They don't like the idea that if they did, they would have to follow him. If they did repent and believe in him, he would have to be the Lord, not them. They don't like the message that they need his forgiveness. And so Jesus won't give them a sign other than the sign of Jonah. So what's the sign of Jonah? Well, we read the story of Jonah, or at least the first part of it, in Jonah chapter 1 before, and Jesus already talked about the sign of Jonah back in Matthew chapter 12. If you're following on the outline, it says Jonah chapter 12. I've added a new chapter in the Bible. It should be Matthew chapter 12. So look on the screen, Jonah chapter, uh, Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. <laughs> I'm tricking even myself. For as Je- says, this is Jesus talking, for as Jonah was in the belly of the huge fish three days and three nights, so the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. So he's saying just like Jonah, if you like, came back to life from the belly of the fish, well, Jesus will be in the earth dead for three days, but then he will come back to life. The one sign that Jesus will do is his resurrection. And how amazing is it 
that by God's grace, when Jesus did rise from the dead, a short time after this, some of these Pharisees repented and believed. The Apostle Paul was a Pharisee. And some of these Sadducees repented and believed. How wonderful is that? But now they weren't interested. Well, bring it home to us. What do we take from this? I've got two points. The first is everything stands or falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus. That is the sign that matters. Sometimes people say to me, oh, if God just showed me a sign, I'd believe. And you have to say to them, well, God's not going to show you a sign. Well, he might, but he hasn't promised it. What he says is look at this wonderful act in history that decides everything. And I want to say to you, if you are someone who is searching here tonight, if you are someone who is still investigating, who's still considering Jesus, God does not promise to give you another sign. He has done the amazing thing already in raising his son from the dead and it's recorded for you here in the scriptures. That is the news you need to grapple with. That is the news you need to deal with. You may have heard recently there's a new Archbishop of Sydney that just got elected, new Anglican Archbishop, uh, and do be praying for him. Uh, but two Archbishops ago, when Peter Jensen was elected Archbishop of Sydney, on the day he was elected or appointed, they put him in front of all the media and, uh, you know, someone from the ABC asked him questions. They were asking him about all sorts of social issues and what he thought. And he said, I just want to talk about the resurrection of Jesus because that's what matters. What you make of the fact that Jesus rose from the dead, that decides everything. And that's the point here. Everything stands or falls on the death and resurrection of Jesus. Second thing to note here, this is a reminder that unbelief is often not due to a lack of evidence. I have lost count of the number of people I have sat with and I have answered every one of their questions. They said, but what about this? But what about that? And then they don't have any more questions. I say, well, do you want to become a Christian? And they say, no. I say, we haven't got any more questions. We've answered all your questions. But no, I don't want to become a Christian because, and usually there's some aspect of their life they don't want to deal with. There's something they don't want to hand over to God. They don't actually want to repent and make Jesus their Lord. See, the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus is, in my view, compelling, and I'd love to talk about it with you. And I'm, not, I'm sure, actually, many people here feel the same. But for most people, actually, the issue is not that they need more evidence. For some it is, but for many it's not. The issue for many is that believing in Jesus would mean I have to recognise that he is the Lord, not me. It would mean recognising that I'm a helpless sinner, that I don't have it all together, that I need a saviour. In the end, we have to remember humanity has a much bigger heart problem than we do head problem. That's where our problem is, in our heart. And Jesus said this, you know, in Luke 16, he said, even if someone rose from the dead, you would not believe. And you can imagine the people there going, no, 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 if someone rose from the dead, I would believe. But then a few weeks later, he rose from the dead and they still didn't believe. And that means, yes, we need to share the news of the death and resurrection of Jesus with people. That's essential. But we also need to pray. We need to pray that God's spirit would work to soften people's hearts so that they would come to repentance and faith. Well, now let's go further into the passage. Turn with me more briefly to the second part of our story. And uh, this one I've called Beware the Yeast. This is verses 5 to 12. This is one of those great little stories about the disciples. I love all the stories where the disciples are a bit slow on the uptake and this is one of them. 
So they move on from this little stoush with the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They get to the other side of the lake and the disciples realize they haven't brought any lunch. They haven't got any bread to eat. And so they're scrambling around saying, let's try and find some bread before Jesus finds out we haven't brought any. It reminds me of when we go on holidays and uh, as we're about, you know, four hours away from home, Victoria says to me, so did you pack that thing I told you to bring? And I say, what thing? And she says, that thing I told you about 19 times to bring. I say, what what thing? She says, that thing I wrote a note on the door that said, whatever you do, bring that thing. Then my standard reaction is, there are shops where we are going on holidays. We can buy one. But they're scrambling around, trying to get something to eat, and Jesus starts teaching them. Look at verse 6. Then Jesus told them, watch out and beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Now, clearly, he's warning them about something that these people they've just interacted with are teaching. But, and I love this, they just hear the word yeast, and they think, oh, Jesus has found us out. He knows we haven't brought the bread. But as funny as we find it, This is one of those moments where Jesus is just absolutely disappointed in them. Look at verse 8. Aware of this, Jesus said, you of little faith. Jesus is so upset at them. You can hear his disappointment here. But theirs is different to the unbelief of the Pharisees. That's evil and intentional. This is just, he's disappointed. You've seen and heard so much and yet you still don't get it. You guys have been with me. You've seen me feed all these people. You've seen me heal all these people. And you still haven't worked out who I am and and, and what I can do. So keep going. Look at verse 8. He says, why are you discussing among yourselves that you do not have bread? Don't you understand yet? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you collected? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many large baskets you collected? Do you hear his frustration? Now, some people think Jesus is making a big point here about the number of baskets that were collected. So he's trying to get them to see the symbolic nature of the fact that the first miracle, they collected 12 baskets, and that, the number 12 represents the, the people of God, the 12 tribes of Israel. And then the second miracle, there were seven baskets, and that's about the number seven being complete and a new, complete people of God. I don't think that's the case here. I think he's just saying, can you not remember how much we had left over the last two times I fed people with next to nothing? Yet you're still asking, where am I going to get bread to feed 12 of us? Have you really still not got it? Have you seen all those miracles and still not got it? It's just a reminder of how slow, spiritually slow, we human beings can be. Slow to see what's right in front of our eyes. But then Jesus gets back to the point he was making. And he makes it totally crystal clear what this yeast is that he's talking about. Look with me from verse 11. He says, why is it you don't understand that when I told you, beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees, it wasn't about bread. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the yeast in bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. He just doesn't care that they've forgotten lunch. He doesn't care what type of bread they find. He cares that they don't get infected by the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees because their teaching is like yeast. You only need a tiny bit of it and it will ruin everything. Which means, of course, the key question of this passage is, what is the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? What is this teaching we need to avoid at all costs? That's actually quite hard to work out. Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees had nothing in common in their teaching. So Jesus could be saying, you know, avoid all of it. 
So on the one hand, avoid the legalism and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees. You see, they wouldn't believe in Jesus because they didn't think they needed Jesus. They thought they were good enough for God. They just obeyed his law and they were fine. And can I tell you, that sort of teaching is alive and well in many churches today. It's what we call moralism. And it's a teaching that says, you're actually pretty good, just pull your socks up and you'll be good enough for God. Rather than a teaching that says, we're all sinners and it's only by trusting in Jesus' death that we can know the mercy of God. And even just a little pinch of that teaching makes a church judgmental and self-righteous rather than loving and mission-hearted. But worse than that, it leads people away from faith in Jesus because it says, trust in yourself. Trust in yourself rather than in Jesus. That's the teaching of the Pharisees. Teaching of the Sadducees is sort of the opposite end. It's the teaching that this world is all there is. And again, that teaching is alive and well in many churches today. Live for this world. Just act like everyone in the world. Live for the pleasures of this world rather than a teaching that says live for eternity. Store up treasures in heaven rather than on earth. Live to serve others, not yourself. And even just a little pinch of that teaching, the teaching of the Sadducees, makes a church irrelevant and useless because we become no different to the world around us rather than salt and light like Jesus wants us to be but worse than that again it leads people away from faith in Jesus and people start to live for this world rather than living for Christ that's the teaching of the Sadducees but ultimately I think the the point Jesus is making is not so much the content of the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees it's don't have the attitude of the Pharisees and the Sadducees you see what was the attitude that marked them all out it was a refusal to believe in Jesus the yeast we need to avoid at all costs is that hardness of heart that negative attitude towards Jesus that attitude of unbelief that's what we need to be aware of as we close let's come back to this idea of yeast Jesus chooses this picture on purpose he picks it on purpose Because it's the idea that it only takes a tiny pinch to ruin the whole loaf. And the same way, it only takes a tiny little bit of false teaching to ruin your faith and to destroy a church. This idea flows out into so many of the warnings of the New Testament. Watch out for false teachers so they do not shipwreck your faith. Watch out, devote yourself to sound doctrine. Let the scriptures be your guide. Test carefully what you hear. That's why I always say to you, have your Bible open when I'm preaching so you can test it. Be careful what you read. Be careful what you listen to. Is it from the Bible? Is it from Jesus? Is it encouraging? Does it build up your faith in Jesus? Or does it actually undercut your faith in Jesus? Because it only takes a pinch of bad yeast to ruin the whole loaf but of course what's the best protection against bad yeast well the best protection is making sure you fill yourself with good bread isn't that right that you fill yourself with the truth about Jesus that you feed on his word and that we speak that word to one another rather than unhelpful words week in week out in church in our gospel teams in any conversation we have I love the way Ephesians 4 encourages us. It'll come up on the screen. Ephesians 4 verse 14 says, Then we will no longer be little children, tossed by the waves and blown around by every wind of teaching, by human cunning, with cleverness in the techniques of deceit. See, that's what we don't want to be, isn't it? 
We do not want to be little children in our faith. We don't want to be tossed around every time a new teaching comes, every time someone says something new. We don't want to be like that with our faith rocked and shaken every time a new Pharisee or a new Sadducee comes with their false ideas. Do not be like that. But instead, look at verse 15. But speaking the truth in love, let us grow in every way into him who is the head, that is Christ. See, it is as we speak the truth of God's word to one another that we feed one another, that we grow one another. That is the bread we need. And that's the bread that protects us from the bad yeast. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for the way we have the wonderful news of the resurrection of Jesus. That Jesus has defeated death and so offers us the certain hope of eternal life. But Father, we pray that we would not be distracted by the teaching, the bad yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Instead, help us to be people who feed on your word, who eat the good bread and who trust only in Christ. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.